Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City, all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazzwall Report. There's a saying from Albert Einstein that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And that's relevant to our show today because our guest is the funny, the smart and larger than life, Mr. Cal Thomas. This month, Cal celebrates the 30th anniversary of his nationally syndicated column, which appears on hundreds of newspapers nationwide and is one of the most highly regarded conservative voices in America. Cal recently came out with a new book called What Works? Common Sense Solutions for a Stronger America. And today we're going to discuss the state of America in relation to his book. With a 45-year background in broadcast and print journalism and numerous awards to his body of work, I feel humbled in his presence. In fact, today's conversation is more like what you would hear if you eavesdropped on a chat between an uncle and his nephew. Welcome to the show, Uncle Cal. Well, thank you very much. I was going to ask which one I was, but I think you've already set me up with the age factor. Nice to be with you. Well, it could have been worse. I was going to say granddad, but you know, my foot is no stranger to my mouth, so I have to be politically correct. (laughs) Well, it's great to be with you and to uh, not only talk about my book, but... uh, the State of the Union, as they say in a different context. Well, yeah, I think one refers to the other, and, and congratulations on your new book. How's it doing? Well, I, they don't tell you up front, uh, but uh, it seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, where I speak, uh, people are very responsive, buy a lot of copies. I hope it just doesn't wind up collecting dust on the shelf, because I think I've uh, advocated something. It may not be unique to me, but uh, a third way beyond the usual right-left Republican-Democrat business that we hear all the time. You know, it's like Groundhog Day here in Washington. We have a little groundhog and me holding a top hat on the cover of the book to represent the movie by that title where Bill Murray wakes up every day and uh, repeats the same days uh, over and over again. And that's what we do in Washington, the same sound bites, the same arguments. Nothing get resolved, but it costs more. And we have a a $17 trillion debt now. Most of it, uh, courtesy of the Chinese, which last I checked, were not uh, our friends. And uh, there doesn't seem to be any way to stop it. Well, we haven't even started, and you're already on steroids. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, I I read your book very neatly laid out in three parts about the past, focusing on people and not politics, and, and then you present some solutions. So let's start with the past, because I think on page 68 you say each generation seems eager to repeat the mistakes of the past while learning nothing from it. So what examples can you give of this in today's world? What do you see? I like to say that the closest we get to history these days is the instant replay. We are not the first people to crawl out to uh, to be born. Now, we, we don't have to crawl out of a cave. We don't have to invent the wheel or discover the use of fire. We have a past. Now, we don't live in the past, but we learn from the past. Mm. If you're going on a journey, uh, let's say you're going to Paris for the first time, you've never been there, you're probably going to do some research. You're going to buy a guidebook or you're going to go online. You're going to find out where the best hotels are that you can afford to good restaurants, tourist attractions, and the people who tell you this are people who've been there. So why don't we look back to the people who have been there Mm. and see how they solve the problems that now confront us. Uh, There's a verse in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything you think has been thought before, everything you've done has been done before. So let's stop repeating the same mistakes. Well, you want some examples. Uh, Let me go to a Democrat uh, who I've quoted in a column recently. The governor of the state of New York, Andrew Cuomo, probably the most blue state in the country. 
Uh, he's in a battle right now with uh, Bill de Blasio, the new uh, ultra-left uh, mayor of New York City, over charter schools. De Blasio wants to shut them down as a sop to the teachers' unions. And Cuomo made a speech which was pretty much ignored by the major New York media, but I found a report on it in a small newspaper in New York. And uh, he said that New York spends more per capita than on education, public education, than any other place in the country, and yet he said we're 32nd, 32nd in performance. And his point was that competition is good, and charter schools are a good uh, competition for the failing public schools. So that's just one of many examples I'm giving. Uh, public schools are the last monopoly in America, and the reason they are is because the teachers' unions contribute so much to the politicians. Well, you know, the past, as I see it, um, as, as a new immigrant, was was... America was built on hard work, integrity, great family values. And, you know, when I used to live abroad, I used to associate America with TV shows like The Cosby Show, Happy Days, Dallas. And it used to be the land where if you worked hard enough, you could really achieve anything. Um, yeah. While that may still be true now, the scenario has changed. And I'll give you an example. Um, I can't say Merry Christmas anymore. I, I'm socially forced to say Happy Holidays. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, instead of, uh, instead of the United States, we become a divided state. Mm -hmm. The culture, the politicians are hyphenating us. They're putting labels on us. We're all parts of groups now, race, racial groups, genders, um, uh, religious groups. Everybody is part of a group that much be, must be appealed to. But the whole art of the individual, the meaning of the individual, the power of the individual has been lost. We're no longer a United States. We're a divided state. Are, are, and our initials are rapidly morphing from USA to ATM. We've moved from an age in which uh, uh, hard work, as you say, and uh, perseverance were celebrated to an age of envy, entitlement, and greed. And what you model and encourage, you get more of. And what you, what you discourage, you get less of. The politicians now are feeding us uh, the equivalent of sugar cereal uh, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It gives us a high. It gives us a rush. But it's not good for us. We need more vegetable politics. We need a better and balanced diet. And we're not getting it from Washington, that's for sure. And then the other thing I've noticed is also um, the concept of double standards being two-faced seems to be acceptable now in society. And i give you an example. Um, Blacks can use the N-word, and they do use it in hip-hop, and they get paid. But if anyone else says it, they get penalized. Yeah. You know, well, we, you know, we seem to be yeah. a 1% nation now because if the 1% objects, yeah. then the whole deal is off. You're absolutely right. You know, the old line of if some people didn't have double standard, there would be no standards at all. But here's a, here's a very recent example. Brandeis University, very, very liberal university. Mm invited uh, to receive an honorary degree. This uh, woman, who is a former Muslim, Ali is her name, uh, and she has written books and made speeches about uh, what she calls the death cult of fundamentalist Islam. Uh, now she has been disinvited. She's not going to receive an honorary degree. And yet, just a few years ago, they had invited and uh, allowed to receive an honorary degree Tony Kushner, the playwright, who doesn't think Israel should exist. So there's your double standard right there. So if you're, if you're speaking out against is radical Islam, and we're not talking about all Muslims, but radical Islam, and telling the truth about it, which ought to be obvious to anybody who watches the news and is paying attention, uh, that uh, the radicals do suppress women. Uh, they do have genital man, uh, mutilation. Uh, there are honor killings and all kinds of other horrors. Uh, then 
you are to be oppressed and denied an honorary degree. But if you get up and say Israel shouldn't exist, the Jewish state, then you're more than welcome at Brandeis University. That is a big double standard, but one of many, especially on college campuses. And America's changed because Americans have changed. You know, they've taken responsibility in the past, but now it's a blame game. Blame the politicians, blame the media and everyone else except themselves. Um, you know, media is a business. We don't give people what we want. We give them what they want. It, and I mean, it's really that simple. You can't hold us to a higher standard. Um, people's values, their own values have to change. We live in a consumer-oriented world. If we held ourselves to a higher standard, we'd get out of business. Well, look at the people who... If are I did a reality them. show on you, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to a reality show on yeah. Kim Kardashian? Yeah, well, I was just about to bring up her along with Miley Cyrus and a lot of these other people we see on the covers of magazines at the supermarket checkout line. Uh, I mean, there was a magazine that went out of business some years ago. It was called New Times Magazine, and in mm. its final editorial, it said there are... Almost no famous people anymore, only celebrities, because fame is too suggestive of steady achievement. Now imagine that. You know, but we have an attitude. Look, look at this income inequality business that the Obama administration and liberal Democrats in the Senate are promoting. I've always suffered from income inequality. There have always been people making more money than me. I don't care how much somebody else makes. All I want is the opportunity, consistent with my talents and ability to work investment of my own capital, taking care of myself to make as much money as my skills and ability and hard work will make me. But today is, the attitude is, if you make $2 and I make $1, you owe me 50 cents to make it fair. That's socialism. That's robbery. That's not America. Well, on page 14, you say that the American public is being played by the politicians and the media and the elites. But really, is there any other choice? Because the public themselves don't have patience for long-term effects. They want the here and now. Well, it's an old argument, Vip. It's uh, whether culture reflects uh, the heart of the country or the heart of the country is reflected by culture. I think you can say a little bit of both. I mean, uh, we would rather watch an exercise video of somebody else sweating to the oldies than we would to go to the gym and work out ourselves. That's just human nature. The politicians have figured this out. An awful lot of people, half the country now, would rather get a government check than go out and earn a government check. We have 47 million people on food stamps in the United States of America in the 21st century. I regard that as a disgrace. That's a scandal. We have more people on unemployment, and the Democrats uh, want to extend it beyond 99 weeks. I was once fired from a job back in the uh, early 70s, and the, uh, the, the length of time then anyone could get an unemployment check was 26 weeks. The theory was we would just tide you over until you got something better. But after 99 weeks and possibly extended, that's like uh, the U.K. system. I read a story in the Daily Mail the last time I was in the U.K. about six months ago about three generations of one family that had never held a job, never expected to get a job, and were offended when David Cameron, the prime minister, suggested they should look for work. That's the kind of entitlement and dependency class and mentality that we're producing in America. It would be anathema to my parents and grandparents. Well, there is a change in social values, and, and, and I personally think the problem with today's world is the people. The politicians just feed off that. That's it. You know, you say America is in danger because debt is rising, population is aging, schools are mediocre, infrastructure is old. So is, is this the end? 
<laughs> well, I'm not a prophet or the son of one, and we've had we've had cyclical things happen in America before. There have been down times, uh, Great Depression, World Wars, this sort of thing. But uh, let's just take right after 9/11, uh, 2001. It was a remarkable thing, a m- remarkable time. This country pulled together. Unlike any time I've seen in my lifetime, I was too young and I was born in the middle of World War II, but I don't remember that, only by the history books. But it was amazing. Even in New York City, which is very famous for its outspoken, uh, uh, horn-honking, uh, you know, uh, verbal expressions to other people, there were people who were letting other people go before them. There were cab drivers who were not honking their horns but were pleasant. Uh, you could walk down the street and felt perfectly safe at any time of day or night. I said, wow, this is remarkable. The, the country was really united. George Bush's approval ratings were through the roof. Democrats and Republicans were hugging each other on the floor of Congress. Do we have to have a tragedy to bring us together? I certainly hope not. But that's the kind of attitude we used to have. But the... I know this. For, I've observed this for years. The fundraisers make money off of keeping us apart. I asked a fundraiser once, why don't you ever send out a positive letter on what you're doing with people's donations? And he told me, you can't raise money on a positive. Uh, I've been asked uh, to be on various network shows in the past. They wanted, The bookers would want to know, what's your opinion of such and such? And I'd tell them, I said, okay, well, fine, we're going to get somebody else. So I said, well, why? And the, and the booker said, well, we wanted somebody a little edgier. They don't want anybody on who can actually solve a problem or be reasonable. They want somebody on who will question the other person's patriotism and whether they're crazy or whatever. This has a corrosive effect on conversation and on our unity as a people. And the media feed this. You're quite right. Has the value of patriotism declined in the U.S.? Uh, I don't think, I think it's morphed, uh, the definition has changed. Uh, people say they love their country, but they can't tell you exactly why anymore. Uh, I love this country not only for its beauty, but also for the liberty the founders uh, gave us. It allows me to rise to as high a level as my talents and persistence will allow. You can't do that in a whole lot of other countries around the world. But those values, that that those things that cause me to love America and to be patriotic about it are rapidly being challenged by a government structure that now feels it is uh, it is fundamental and it is central, and the people are simply peripheral. They're there to worship the golden calf of the Dow Jones Industrials or political power in Washington and what the politicians can give them. You know, John Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I would extend that one more sentence. Ask what you can do for yourself, because nobody can make your life better more than you. But do you think the American public now have become tired and, and, and maybe even lazy in the way America is being run because there's so much infighting all the time? You're quite right. And of course, that is the great enemy to democracy. When you have a people that are not uh, engaged, when they're not paying attention, it's like leaving your door unlocked at night and the burglar finds out and comes in and takes everything of value in your house and maybe beats you up and kills you. Uh, democracy must be protected. A constitutional republic must be regarded. It is we're only one generation away, as Ronald Reagan used to say, uh, from self-destruction. And all great empires, as I know you know from history, uh, Mesopotamia, the Roman Empire, fell from within 
from corruption uh, before they were conquered from without. And if we think that this is a nation that is going to go on forever just because our founders had a brilliant idea and we've sustained it for more than 230 years without additional investment by this generation and the one just behind it, we're sorely mistaken and don't understand history. Do you think racism exists in the country? Oh, sure including among blacks and uh, Latinos and whites and every Sure. And, and not just racism. It's part of a deeper problem of, of people wanting to look down on others to make f- them feel better about themselves. You know, they're celebrating Lyndon Johnson's uh, famous uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act right now down at the uh, LBJ Library in Austin. But what a lot of people forget is that those arms that LBJ twisted were the arms of Democrats who were Southern racists, some of whom were members of the Ku Klux Klan or former former members like Robert Byrd of West Virginia, uh, Bull Connor, uh, cattle prods, water hoses, dogs. These were all Democrat leaders who were opposed to the Civil Rights Act. And it was Republicans in the main who voted for that, including the uh, Senate Republican leader, Everett Dirksen, who was there at the signing, along with Hubert Humphrey, of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So we forget history. You know, Republicans are painted as racist and not caring about black people or the poor. But, you know, but people should be reminded that it was a Republican, Abraham Lincoln, who signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and uh, it was Republicans who uh, were behind uh, integration in, in schools and other places before Democrats came around and took the credit. But Democrats came up with a revolutionary idea with Obama, black and young. Their policies really didn't change significantly. But do you think people voted out of pure rebellion for a change? And he was, was a perfect re- example of reflecting that rebellion? Yeah, I think it was more than rebellion. I think uh, people wanted to, uh, how shall we say, uh, uh, experience propitiation for uh, racism and slavery in the past. And- Pro what? Propitiation, the, the, the old idea that uh, you're paying for a sin, you're, uh, you're sacrificing something like the, uh, like the ancient cultures did. They'd you know, sacrifice a chicken to a, or even in the, in the days of uh, ancient times, they'd sacrifice a living child to the, to the uh, false god of Molech, uh, child sacrifice. So it was kind of a propitiation for our sins of uh, racism and slavery. And so a lot of people didn't want to be called a racist, so they voted for Obama. So it was an act of redemption, really. Yeah, an act of redemption. That's right. And uh, and the second time as well, I think there was a lot of that element to it. I think there was just um, political fatigue. Well, yeah, but uh, but there, look, I mean, anybody who's been through the whole civil rights process, I was there on the Lincoln Memorial grounds with Martin Luther King Jr. when he did his "I Have a Dream" speech. Um, <clears throat> anybody who's been through all of that and covered uh, uh, not only demonstrations but uh, horrors. Uh, horrors perpetrated on the African-American community just because of the color of their skin. Uh, I, you know, you have a deep, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. was a segregated city well into the 1960s, even as late as uh, the early 1970s. And uh, younger people don't understand how it was. And so I understand that feeling. On the other hand, what have the liberal politicians done for African-Americans? They're in worse shape today uh, than, uh, than they've ever been. Uh, you've got half of African-American babies uh, aborted in this country. You've got uh, those that are born. I think it's well above 80 percent, close to 90 percent, have no fathers in the home. Uh, Are they better off economically? I don't think the statistics show. Some are, but a majority are not. So what have the the liberal politicians done for the African-American community? Nothing. Well, based on Obama's performance, do you think we'll ever elect a black man again, or are we done? 
Oh, I certainly hope not. Look, I, I mean, I certainly hope so, but not... not, not no, but that's a politically that correct answer. But do you think people have said, okay, we've done our Redemption Act now? No, 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 no. You know, it's like, it's, uh, remember the joke of the, about the woman with five children mm. who was asked if you had to do it over again, would you have five kids? She said, yes, just not these kids. Uh, I'm all for an African-American president, a female president, just not Obama and not Hillary Clinton. It shouldn't be gender and race. It ought to be what you have in your head. It ought to be, it, it ought to be what your ideas are. It ought to be what your philosophy is. That's the other problem in America. We have, we have labeled people, we have pigeonholed people, we've categorized people, and their ideas and philosophy have been buried uh, in favor of these externals, which tell you nothing about the character of the individual. Well, talking about extreme points of view, do you think we have enough political parties in the U.S. political system? Because India has about 1,500. Okay, <laughs> yes. we have far fewer. Yeah, that well, means our our um, uh, ability to progress is, is caught between a few extremes. Well, we've had uh, because we have fewer choices. Yeah, well, we've had attempts at three, four, five, and more than half a dozen parties in the past. Mm. But these are fragments. They, I mean, this is a two-party country. We had uh, we've had two versions of the American Party: one under the uh, racist governor of Alabama, George Wallace; uh, another under Ross Perot. We've had a constitutional party. Uh, we've had uh, the Bull Moose Party. We've had, got the Green Party. Uh, but these are all uh, fragments and uh, figments, and uh, don't really appeal to the main stream. They can divide and they can give the election to somebody else if they siphon enough votes away like Ralph Nader did, like Ross Perot did, but they don't really uh, dominate in American politics. I think for Americans, uh, we have historically worked within a two-party system and I don't see a third party coming along. I think when people get frustrated, they stay home, and that's just as bad, frankly, because by staying home, you're in effect voting for the person you really don't like. Now, we really don't have significant leadership in the Republican Party. Is, is their value-based model outdated? Do they just appeal to the old white man? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. And as an old white man, I guess I would, have to, I would have to agree with you. I do think you have to go and make your case every generation. You can't, you know, John Boehner, the House Speaker, always talks about uh, the American people, the American people. Hmm. Well, we're not a united American people. There's not a monolith. We are rich and poor, middle class, black and white, Hispanic, male and female, uh, educated, not so educated, uh, PhDs, uh, barely got out of college. Um, we are a diverse people. What unites us, or at least what has united us in the past, is not only a shared language, but a shared philosophy of what America is. We don't have the leaders that tell us what we are anymore. We don't even have a foreign policy. I wrote a piece recently. I said, if anybody can explain American foreign policy to me, please write me a letter. I don't see what it is. The only policy that I see is that we're putting more and more pressure on Israel to make more and more concessions, which never, in, never resulted in any reciprocity from the Palestinian, Arab, or Muslim world. So I don't know what our, our foreign policy is. We just seem to be leaderless and drifting, even with this president now. And you're right, the Republicans, although they will have someone who emerges, uh, doesn't. So well, that's think, that leads me to my next question. You know, yeah. In this country, is the leadership reflective of the best of what we have? Hmm, I hope not. <laughs> because, you know, in 300 million people. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people, I was talking about this the other night with some friends, a lot of people don't want to run. Good people, talented people, they don't want to run for office. 
because the opposition re- research will tear your life apart and turn it upside down. They could have uh, made Mother Teresa look like a streetwalker if she ever ran for political office. It's horrible. It's evil. If you've ever made a mistake or done something in your life that you're embarrassed about and who hasn't, uh, it would be if you had a bad date in high school, somebody would find her and they'd drag her out and she'd, uh, if she was a member of the other party, she'd make you look like a, uh, you know, a stalker. Uh, so a lot of people don't want to go through that. The second thing they don't want to go through, they, they don't want to re- go through the process of raising the money. You know, the last presidential election cycle, according to the Federal Election Commission, cost $7 billion, $7 billion for a job that pays $450,000 a year and you get free rent and a nice plane and a, and a limo. Uh, I, I just... A lot of people don't want to sell their souls for that because the big contributors uh, want a piece of the action, and they um, they uh, good people don't want to run for it. I don't blame them. Somebody asked me once if uh, I ever thought about running for office. I said, well, it did cross my mind once, but I took two aspirin, lay down for a while, the feeling went away. <laughs> well, I liked your chapter on moral code. We were talking about politicians earlier. On page 70, you say our politicians don't follow or are, or are not penalized on a moral code. Should they be? Well, I think... Uh, I, I mean, you look at Anthony know. Weiner and the gang. Yeah, well, Anthony Weiner, Gary Hart, Bill Clinton, you know, growing up, uh, well, for better or for worse, uh, a person who'd been divorced could never be elected president. Then Bill Clinton uh, has an affair with an intern in the Oval Office and gets reelected. So I think that's kind of a, a barometer of, uh, of where we are. Uh, things are said on television now that once could have gotten your license uh, revoked. Um, words are put in the... Uh, in, in the mouths of, of characters that would have shocked my grandmother, who once uh, called me aside and admonished me for using words that w- uh, had offended her, and the words were toilet paper. Well, how tame that seems today by comparison. And so it gets worse and worse. And then, of course, you go on cable, HBO, some of these other networks. You see, uh, you know, sex acts and semi-nudity and bordering on pornography, and, and that has a corrosive effect on culture. I mean, when I was growing up, I went to a girl's house to take her out and I'd go in, and uh, usually her father was sitting in the living room. Sometimes he was sitting there with his shotgun cleaning it, and the, uh, <laughs> the message was, I know what kind of shape my daughter's leaving in. You better bring her back in the same shape. And that had a good uh, mutually uh, fulfilling uh, effect on a young uh, male libido. But nobody talks like that anymore. We have uh, contraceptives in our public schools. We uh, we teach uh, what used to be called wrong is now right. And uh, I think we're suffering some serious consequences from that. Well, also, you know, we seem to be a handout generation. But in all fairness, war and recession impact the way public thinks. You know, we're then driven to think by fear. Hence, our values change as well. Um, during times of war and recession, uh, we will vote for handouts. So do you think political agenda slants towards more socialist tendencies whenever a recession strikes? Well, I do. But look, here's the thing. I'm no genius, but uh, I, I've tried to be responsible in my financial life, for example. Some years ago, I uh, got a financial advisor, and I didn't know anything about money. And he said, you know, most people who are good in one field know absolutely nothing about money. And he was right. Well, the financial and, advisors don't know anything about money. Otherwise, well, we wouldn't well, be having well, my, recessions. You look at Wall Street. Well, How did they get does. it so wrong? Mine does. Uh, and and as a result, I've, I've invested wisely and uh, stuck with the stock market through up and down. And I have uh, a nice little nest egg to take care of myself and my wife and my old age. 
Now, the attitude now of the culture is that, uh, well, you owe other people because you have more money than we do. Uh, but we don't model people. We don't celebrate people who take care of themselves. Uh, I, I want a safety net. What I don't want is a hammock. I was in Singapore last year. And uh, where the uh, the unemployment rate at the time was a little over 2%, it's now dropped under that, uh, according to The Economist uh, in February, I think, the magazine. It's under 2%. So I asked, I asked a cab driver, and they always know everything. I said, why is the unemployment rate so low here? He said, because we don't have any welfare. If you don't work, you don't eat. Well, there's a biblical value. Now he said we have, uh, you know, for the legitimately poor, the handicapped, people who are unable to work, we'll help them. But if you're able-bodied and you don't work, you don't eat. Now, that's a great motivator. You remember during welfare reform in this country, um, the, the left said if, you, if Clinton signed welfare reform, people would starve in the streets. Right. Well, they didn't. He vetoed it twice, and then when the Republicans took over the, the Congress in 94, he signed it and took credit for it. But uh, they didn't. They went out and got work. I think that's the model that we have. Work is good. Work is noble. Work, uh, work gives you dignity. Well, now that we're talking about the international, let's talk about U.S. and uh, its international competitiveness. Uh, one of the problems I find is that our own politicians are not internationally savvy. Uh, the U.S. itself does not have a great international record. And, and if you look at our wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, here's what I find an example of how ridiculous things get. Um, we give Pakistan aid. But the guy was in his own military compound, and I'm referring to Osama bin Laden. Yep. Uh, after the fact, they said they didn't know, but we still give them aid. And then on top of that, the doctor who helped us find the guy, uh, we do nothing for him. What's the message we're giving there? That anyone who wants to give us help, um, we're going to leave them alone at the mercy of their captors. Yeah, it's it's sort of a like like the mafia protection racket. If you uh, the guy comes around every week or every month to the laundry or whatever, and and uh, we'll make sure your windows don't get broken and your store doesn't get burned down if you give us some money. And what we're doing in giving money to Pakistan and some of these other rogue nations around the world mm. is we're saying to them, well, we want to buy your friendship. Well, we're not buying their friendship. We're not buying anything. Look at the waste of money down the rat hole in Afghanistan, one of the most corrupt nation states in the world. Uh, the brother of the current president involved in the heroin trade. Uh, they're siphoning off money there for everything except building a, a democratic system. Uh, we still give money to Egypt. Uh, that's, that place is in turmoil. Uh, Iraq, uh, it seemed uh, like a good idea to topple Saddam Hussein at the time. You got 15, 30 people killed once every, almost every day, suicide bombings. Uh, Iran continues to meddle in the world, being one of the top funders of terrorism around the world, while it builds its own bomb. And, uh, and, and, and Obama just, you know, oh, we're going to solve this diplomatically. No, you're not either. And, and this is one of the big problems. The United States, under several administrations, this is not unique to this one, uh, doesn't fully understand radical Islam. This, the secularists who are running the government think that if we just give them what they want, they won't kill us. Well, we tried that at Munich with uh, Neville Chamberlain and Hitler. It didn't work out too well. And uh, these people think that their God has directed them to kill all infidels. That means everybody who doesn't agree exactly with them. But A sec yeah, if ahead. it's happened under all these administrations, is yeah. there something we as a public don't know? Because you can't have so many idiots one after the other doing the same thing, right? There's I got to be something deep down. And if you had to guess it, even if it was like a conspiracy theory, why are we giving money to these guys? 
Well, again, it's uh, it's a false hope. I mean, I, I'm re- I interviewed Condoleezza Rice when she was uh, Secretary of State, and I put a direct question to her just along the lines that I've been stating now about why would you think that, that religious people, uh, radical Muslims, who really think, and they will say so, and uh, they certainly say so to their own people, they say something different to the West, of course, tell us what we want to hear. Why would you think that if they believe they have a direct order from their God to kill people, take over uh, the, the state of Israel, throw the Jews out, and all the Jews are descended from apes and pigs, what they say in their textbooks and teach their children, why would you think that they would uh, bargain with a, a secularist, an infidel, uh, to uh, to give up any of those beliefs? It just she couldn't answer the question. She you know she kind of shouted, "Well, you know that's just how some people talk." Well, it isn't how some people talk. It's the center of their existence. If I read the sermons coming from the uh, the Islamic pulpits all over the Middle East, I read them in translation. It's all about the same thing. America is the great Satan. Israel is uh, is a, is a, is a wart, a a, a, a boil. Uh, and and must be removed. Uh, they teach the the children uh, that jihad is the and dying for Allah is the highest uh, goal that any Muslim can achieve. Uh, mothers uh, of sons who send them off with their suicide vest to bomb and kill other people, uh, they they couldn't be prouder of them. They celebrate the mothers. Saddam Hussein used to send them money. And, and the West, the secular West, doesn't understand this. I don't know why. The evidence is there, but they won't they won't accept it. Yeah, but you know what? That's not uh, if Condoleezza Rice, her answer would, wouldn't be acceptable to me. There's got to be something that is secret uh, that only s- allows for speculation of some sort of conspiracy going on. You, you wouldn't do it under so many administrations, uh, keep doing the same thing. Well, part of it's oil money, of course, and has been in the past. So mm. We uh, cozied up to the Saudis. I mean, uh, uh, a lot of money involved in that. They're paying off a lot of people. and uh, But, uh, you know, that's one, one of the many reasons, but a very good top reason, to become energy independent. Well, their religion is their politics. How important is religion in the state of our politics? Well, I think it has certainly informed them. I mean, uh, you know, the Bible teaches there are two kingdoms, one that's passing away Mm -hmm. and one that is eternal. But I I do think that certain, I mean, the obvious ones, uh, laws against murder and stealing, uh, come from the Ten Commandments. Looks like the one on adultery has been pretty much repealed by a lot of the politicians. Uh, (laughs) Coveting, of course, is not illegal, although it it, it is immoral according to the uh, Ten Commandments. But, uh, you know, Western law, if you read Blackstone's law uh, from... uh, uh, from England, you see how much of uh, uh, Western law and the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, make reference to uh, uh, rights coming from God, endowed by our Creator. Now, you know, you can worship the God of your choice, but the idea of uh, of rights coming from outside of the institutions of men and women was a unique idea, and uh, it, it put those rights on a plane where it said uh, other human institutions uh, cannot touch them. But, of course, that's what we're seeing right now. Uh, we're, we're seeing those human institutions uh, touching a lot of those rights, and that's why I think we're in trouble as a nation. Well, on page 62, you say that the Christian worldview has a demonstrated track view of working for society at large. What did you mean by that? 
Well, uh, if you first of all, if you acknowledge that uh, you know there is a Creator God, right, who endows the rights and uh, to whom we are ultimately accountable and responsible, even more than ourselves and our own family, it gives you a certain perspective. You're not you're not an island. You're not alone. You're not a law unto yourself. There is order in the universe, even in the midst of chaos. Uh, there there are there are concepts there is uh, of right and wrong. There is objective truth of which can be known and can be found. And there are um, uh, ways of living that, in the words of the preamble to the Constitution, promote the general welfare. And I think uh, the idea of, uh, of sacrifice and, and loving your neighbor and helping the poor yourself as opposed to the government, government is a last resort, and uh, compassion and all of these uh, flow from the Judeo-Christian worldview. And in the chart analysis that's in the book, I look at uh, different religions and philosophies and, right. and see what the outward of those are uh, in terms of uh, you know public policy and life on this planet. But aren't all religions have somewhat of a similar concept? Yes, uh, many of them do. But then yes. you only uh, limit it to the Christian. Well, but but many of those others start with uh, self and uh, work outward, and uh, many of those others uh, uh, have an angry God that is uh, always looking out uh, to see if you're having any fun, and if you are, he wants to crack down on you. Uh, many of the others uh, have a God who is not knowable on this earth, and uh, who who doesn't deal with the central problem in every human, which the Bible calls sin. Uh, we, we're more sophisticated now. We call ourselves dysfunctional, if we even go that far, and has a provision for uh, dealing with that in a person uh, named Jesus of Nazareth. Now, do you think in the U.S. Um, the followers of Christianity have become weak? You can't say Merry Christmas. If you tried telling a Muslim during his fasting of Ramadan, happy hungry holiday, he'd freak. <laughs> yeah, well, I can say it, I do. I, when I go to the, I don't go to the stores much anymore. I don't like going to stores. I order my Christmas gifts online. Mm. But on the few occasions when I go and they say happy holiday, uh, I'll, I'll just say Merry Christmas back to them. I can say whatever I want. But no, you're right. It's, uh, the, the language has been corrupted. It's been restricted. It's been watered down. Uh, it's thin gruel. It's uh, pablum. And it's meaningless. I'm happy to say Happy Hanukkah to my Jewish friends. I'm happy to say Happy Ramadan to my Muslim friends. But uh, when it comes to Christmas, boy, you've got to uh, all of the all of the Christians, all of the conservatives have to bow down to the secular gods. Uh, so or aren't aren't they becoming faith. weaker? Yeah, well, I think yes, but not not only for that reason. I think people are afraid to uh, to speak up anymore, and uh, uh, for what they believe in. Uh, I'm I'm all for everybody, including people who don't agree with me, to to have the total freedom to speak and say and act in a lawful way uh, according to their own ideologies. But I notice an awful lot of people, if you read my chapter on hate mail in the book, which is kind of fun, uh, are, are less tolerant of me, and and a lot of people cower. You know, it's like a bully in the neighborhood. We had a bully in our neighborhood growing up. A lot of people were afraid, happened to be a girl, early feminist. Uh, a lot of people were afraid to even go near her, so they tried to avoid her. Once I punched her in the nose, and she never bothered me again. <laughs> <laughs> One joke after the other. Um, you know, more important or equally as important as abortion and same-sex marriage as issues in America is atheism, and that's slowly coming into real prominence. Well, we just, we just celebrated their national holiday on April 1st. Which was what? Uh, April Fool's Day. <laughs> <laughs> the 
fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You know? uh, look. Uh, uh, belief and disbelief. Well, I, look. You know, one of my producers said, uh, you should be a conservative stand-up comedian. <laughs> Uh, the, the beauty of America is everybody can believe what they want. And I'm, I want to be tolerant of everybody to mm. believe in whatever they want to believe. Uh, but I notice that the toleration is only uh, one way. Uh, I don't get often the same kind of tolerance for my views. Let's look at what's happened uh, with this whole gay marriage business. And you see what the, uh, you know, the Mozilla guy does. Do you have an objection to the union or the fact that it's being called marriage? L- look. Uh, my 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 personal view is that uh, God made men and women for each other, and uh, in both testaments in Genesis, and Jesus quotes it in, Ma- in, in uh, that very verse in, in Matthew uh, that men and women are made for each other. However, I live in a country and in a world where not everybody believes that. I'm I'm perfectly happy to let. Homosexuals have whatever uh, relationship they want, but when they come into the marketplace and they want the cultural approval of what we call marriage, Mm -hmm. and more than that, they want to move into the schools and teach that what they do and how they act is just as normal as heterosexuals, I have a problem with that. And I I don't think, you know, traditionally, not only in this country, but throughout human history, the male-female relationship and raising children and the rest has, uh, has, has been more than a tradition. It has been a foundation of all societies. And, of course, the polygamists are next in line. Their groups have already said, when, when same-sex marriage is approved, uh, we want our rights, too. And who's going to say no to them? And how about uh, adult-child relationships? There are people out there, small group as it may be, who think that it ought to be okay to, quote, marry a child, an underage child. They certainly do it in Muslim countries. What's wrong with that? And what standard will we use to say no? Once we've said yes to so-called alternative lifestyles, where's the line? There isn't one. It's been totally obliterated. Well, you talk about the threat of radical Islam, but I have a bigger concern, uh, which is not that extreme. But my concern is that in America, why is there no real leader among America's moderate Muslims who should be coming out and standing with the American people against the radicals abroad or at home? I don't see demonstrations on the streets. I don't see peaceful protests. And that concerns me. If you look at the uh, if you look at the polls, some of the polls that have been taken of the Muslim community, mm. you will find even among the so-called moderates, the people who seem to be <clears throat> more Western in their dress and conversation, that they uh, large numbers of them approve of um, you know suicide bombings and uh, some of these uh, and, and the you know suppression of women. I mean, in Islam, uh, if a man wants to divorce his wife, all he has to do is give her a certificate of divorce. And she's gone. He can take the children. She has no rights at all. Uh, she is property. She is the man's property. Now, they don't want to talk about this because, because it wakes up too many people. And, and even secularists would say, well, that's just totally unfair. That's not, that's not uh, giving the woman equal rights at all. It just, she's, she's subsumed into the man. But that's what, it, that's what the Koran teaches, that women are, are, are less uh, valuable than men. But where are... Where is that leader of America's moderate Muslims? Well, I'm not sure there are any, and they probably, if there are any, uh, they don't want to stand up for they're afraid that they might get whacked. Look, during the era... And then they complain about discrimination. Yeah, well, look, during the era of Yasser Arafat, there were some moderate Palestinians who stood up and wanted to negotiate with Israel. They were murdered. 
Now, after a few uh, incidents like that, you kind of think, well, you know, I may be a moderate, but I think I'll keep that to myself and in my own home and my own mosque. I'm not going to stand up because I don't want my throat cut. And, and I, you know, that can be a very, very uh, uh, powerful force to keep uh, moderate voices down. In your book, you say we live in an age beyond embarrassment. You're referring to pornography, am I? Well, not just that. Not just that. I mean, if you if you look at the language, I mean, there's a line from uh, My Fair Lady where Henry Higgins is singing uh, uh, about what a moderate man he is, and and uh, and and I was I was once a man who never spoke above a hush. All of a sudden, I'm using language that would make a sailor blush. And uh, I think you see this again on TV. You get women with guns shooting men. You've got them using foul language, talking about uh, bodily fluids, uh, story after story about rape and child abuse. And, and, and it's like a pollutant into the culture every single night. CBS is like the crime broadcasting system. I think there are more crime shows on CBS than any other network. And uh, the, the movies are more and more graphic. Uh, it used to be in the old cowboy and Indian movies when I was growing up. Yeah, they'd shoot the bad guy, but you wouldn't see uh, the bullets emerging from his body, and you wouldn't see him bleeding to death on the streets. And we know from, we've, from what we've heard with some of these people who shoot up schools and other places that in many cases they were, if you can use the word inspired, they were influenced uh, by some of this uh, cultural swill. I think, you know, it's a form of cultural suicide we're doing to ourselves, and it gets worse and worse and worse because the appetite gets stronger and stronger uh, from our lower nature. Well, you also emphasize that chastity is mocked. There should be more emphasis on purity and self-control. Well, there was a, a show uh, headed by Phil Donahue, uh, one of the original talk show hosts, some years ago, and he had this uh, he had this 17-year-old boy on. I remember it well, and uh, or maybe it was 18. He said uh, the boy. It was a show on virgins and virginity, and he was mocking the boy. And he said, "Well, why you're you're a handsome young man? Why why would you want to be a virgin? You could probably have any any girl you wanted, or many girls if you wanted." And the kid said, really respectfully, he said, "Well, Mr. Donahue." I've noticed that uh, people who engage in sexual activity before they're married uh, often develop some very serious problems, uh, STDs, unwanted pregnancy, abortion, dishonoring the girl, saddening her parents and the, and the boy's parents, too. And I've just chosen to, you know, save myself for the woman that God has for me. Well, Donnie, it was astounded. Same thing we went through with Tim, Tim Tebow, the football player. Uh, American football player, when he came out with his strong faith and he wanted to save himself for his wife, he was mocked and ridiculed, usually by the people who were engaging in activity that he was not engaging in. So, so you some, what uh, are you suggesting? Are you suggesting censorship? No, you don't. You can't censor behavior. I'm just saying. Uh, I'm just saying. Well, I don't watch TV. I only work in it. I, I've seen studies that if you watch too much TV, it's bad for the brain cells. Uh, but I, I don't watch it. I find it a distraction and a diversion from uh, what really matters. I'd but then, what's the solution to this? Pardon? What's the solution? Well, I don't think there is a solution. I mean, again, uh, just as in politics, uh, people have found out how to appeal to the public's lower nature. Again, it's the sugar rush. I mean, stuff with sugar on. This is why we're such an obese nation. We have we put sugar on everything. We eat stuff with lots of sugar in it, and it tastes good and it feels good. The idea of discipline and uh, self-respect and you know commitment and fidelity and all of these things are part of another generation. Now uh, the national anthem see, seems to be, "Let the devil take tomorrow. Help me make it through the night."
Well, talking about another generation, you say that the modern Western culture has been built on the success ethic. But what do you think the future Western culture will be built on at the rate we're going? Well, at the rate we're going, I, I think it's going to be increasing dependency. Uh, you've got now Obamacare, if it, if it is not repealed, uh, taking over one-sixth of this nation's economy. Why would people put their faith in government when, when government has done a lousy job of running Medicare, which is much smaller than Obamacare is going to be. Because it allows you to blame them when it goes wrong, and then when you get it right, you say, well, yes, I voted. But we don't, we don't blame them. Here's, here's what they say and what they tell us and what we buy. They say, well, the, the reason it didn't work is that we weren't spending enough money. Look at the election cycles. Every politician says we need to have better education. We need to have more money for education. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago with Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, uh, they spend more money than any other state, yet they're 32nd in the nation in achievement. So if money and achievement were related we ought to be graduating more National Merit Scholars from our schools, but we're not. There's no or very little connection between the amount of money spent on an education and educational achievement. If there were, uh, then all of those kids brought up in one-room schoolhouses uh, would, have, would have graduated as, as total idiots. But money, it's about the unions, of course. It's about the teachers' unions. But again, people don't pay attention. Now, you mentioned the cure strategy. What does that mean? Jim Pinkerton, my uh, very good close friend, has been writing about these things a long time. The chapter is called uh, Cure Versus Care. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're spending uh, huge amounts of money now on such diseases as Alzheimer's, which as the baby boomers age uh, will, uh, will be an even greater challenge. Uh, but I'm saying I would rather spend more money up front while caring for those who have these, uh, these uh, life-threatening and uh, lingering diseases, more money up front on a cure. Right then I would uh, just caring for them, because if you find a cure, not only are you, are you going to relieve suffering, of course, which is primary, but you're also going to save an awful lot of money. So I think uh, that and uh, restructuring the way the hospitals are done, I talk about this documentary done some years ago by some friends of mine at NBC uh, called The Nun and the Bureaucrat. It's too long to get into now, but this whole chapter in the book on it. There are ways to reform hospitals. There are ways to make the uh, medical uh, community more responsive and more caring about patients at a, at, a, at a lower cost and increasing efficiency. But let's just take, uh, you know, the reason so many doctors do so many tests is to avoid lawsuits. The one major thing left out of Obamacare was tort reform. I mean, that would have lowered the cost considerably. Doctors do tests that are unnecessary because they feel they'll get sued if they don't, and that helps drive up the costs. Well, again, this is long-term versus short-term. And you know what? People have no appetite for that, it seems, these days. Um, And no politician in his right mind would engage in something beyond his term of office. Well, that's true, but uh, we've got to have some leaders step up, even at the cost of losing some elections, to, to tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. Uh, otherwise, the country is going to evaporate, and we will not pass on to our children and grandchildren that which we have received from our forebears. Well, in that case, you should be giving your book free to each member of Congress. They should be <laughs> you, you use that as a promo and asking for their feedback. It'd be interesting yeah. to see what they say. Well, now, I'm going up to speak to a group of them soon, and uh, <clears throat> I intend to do that. But I think really the ultimate answer is uh, space exploration. We find another planet, we do it over, and we do it right this time. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on the show, Cal. Where can we get your book? Online at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and um, if uh, if you don't have a liberal bookstore owner, probably in any good bookstore. Well, all the best with what works. Thanks. Thank you, sir. 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswal and my Facebook page, The Vip Jaswal Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my dream team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern with more fascinating stories that fill our lives with the inspiration and information we so need to kickstart the week. I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your family and loved ones, and until next Sunday, have a productive and a happy week ahead.